Welcome, my dystoplicans. I'm Raul Guerrero, and you are listening to the Dystopian Republic. Today's story begins on the evening of August 18th, 1973. What started off as an evening to celebrate Adelina's entry into adulthood was now a siege Alexis Jr. had total control of letting him know that he held the fates of every person in Platicosta. He told Adelino Sr. and his elites that it was time for the world to know who they were and what they were all about. Alexis advised them not to even contemplate interrupting him as he won't hesitate spraying them like the mosquitoes buzzing around his lights. Adelino clenched the center of his forehead so hard that it left a mark pinker than the rosy tint heating his anger. While he and Cortenay were well protected, Adelina, Adelino Jr., Kimmy, Kiana, Brett Jr., Rhett, and Ramira were one false move away from dying. The kids feared that their parents would try something rash in an attempt to save the day. Adelino Sr. and Cortenay were worried that the standoff would scare their children into satisfying Alexis's every whim. Snuggling him tight, she joined in his palpitating over the high likelihood that their life's work was about to be burned to the ground. No way in hell would they let that happen, especially at the hands of their mortal enemy. Nefoeli's troops had the partygoers at gunpoint, but were ambuscaded by militia people who looked more like robots than humans. They managed to only fire a few bullets at their hostages before their attention had to turn to their ambushers. The gunfire and subsequent pandemonium took the worst fears the seven kids had and realized them. They dashed for it so fast that they blew through the brittled, cracked, and chipped windows, sprinkling them with cuts too tiny for the naked eye to see. Ikena, Yehide, and the natives sitting with them hid under their chairs like they were desks. Nefawali's troops locked them inside and rushed their roar into battle, instilling an unguarded fear in them as each second heard dozens of shots ring out. Their rush was initially flustered at how machine-like their aggressors were, but that charge got itself together when they saw the horned crosses on their jackets. Informed by Nefoeli's troops of the ambush, Alexis screamed at them to kill every B-word elite in sight, not wanting to hear a single heartbeat from that ballroom when he gets there. He told Adelino Sr. that he and all the racist kind won't come out as the victors. Courtenay told Alexis that he may have evaded custody once, but assured him that he won't get away a second time, adding that he'll soon be in hell with his father. Her words made him scream his rage out, order his troops to target her kids in particular and terminate the radio connection. Courtenay's knees hit the floor 
bringing her to a height as low as her feelings, touching Adalino such that he orders his troops and reinforcements to protect his children at any cost. The harsh yes sir they received made their nerves relax a little, but even that was wiped away and shoved meters down a hole when their guards informed them of a breach attempt in progress, identifying the assailants as their fugitive houseworkers. In times of peace, the long grass slope open for the skies to look on was divided by part of the building tall electric barbed wire fencing that protected the Onion Castle from attack. Adelino's guards were in an intense firefight against Akosua, Kahina, Lumusi, Juma, Kesembo, and Tadala. The two sides used the surrounding forest to shield themselves from the opposing camp's lethal sprays. For the former houseworkers, their offense was a lifetime in the making, the climax of everything they went through as one. Born over the span of a day in Brumelby, it was as if those six were destined to enjoy life and suffer its worst aspects hand in glove. Their great-grandparents fled to the Den village from Richelieu when Brumelia was in the thicket of its worst famine, seeing it as their place to start over. The Cerebo, Zamit, Kojo, Baharia, Metido, and Mangawa families emigrated to Nefuala to escape the racism that plagued 1950s America. Upon settling into a single cul-de-sac, they bore witness to said nation's closeness with Robapel. The two nations would hold beauty pageants, auction off buffalo, and have parties that jingled and danced all night and into the next morning. Growing up, Okosua worked her way to the tops of every class she had, leaving every runner-up in the dust. From her first footstep, Kahina danced, tapped, and hopped in contempt of the profiling her parents experienced from American police. Lumusi was a child who flipped off the rules and loved staking it to any adult who supervised her. Juma spent his childhood winning soccer games and championships for his grade school, earning more titles and accolades than any other player. When Kasembo was young, the piano his music teacher assigned him to play became his love, using its white and black keys to shine light on a world trapped in its darkness. The poems and stories Tadala wrote during his early years of life were soups of his love for Nefuala, its people, Robopel, their residents, and the two men who led the nations when they were united democracies. Like every other Nefualese and Robopelese, he and his partners saw Haruna and Chizoba as angels spawned by God himself. The union Nefuala and Robopel was so tight that it was ingrained in both their constitutions. Wanting to keep the two nations united, Haruna and Chizoba agreed to swap control of them from time to time. Their desire was to get to know, understand, and spend time 
with the other's people, creating a bond that even the world's superpowers could not break. It was driven by a fear that the colonists would one day return to reclaim the land they stole. Haruna would preside over Robapel for a period of time and spend another as the leader of Nefuwala and Chizoba would do the inverse. Every so often, however, one would head both governments while the other was either out sick or on an outside endeavor, even though the lengths of those tenures would range from hours to over a year. At no point did Haruna or Chizoba overstay their welcome. Akosua and her partners learned the art of shooting to kill and how to be unconditionally obedient when Haruna governed Nefuala and Robapel while Chizoba was away on business in the Adalun Islands' capital city of Lunsal. Not a thing was known about why he insisted on taking the trip, the matters that were discussed, or what was put into motion upon its conclusion, leaving it wide open to public speculation. When Adelino Sr. toppled Haruna's Robapel, he fled to the West African mainland, making Chizoba not stand a chance against the Bromelian settlers who took over that country and would help Bertha Ferd turn Nefuala into a puppet. Grimsby Sr. could make move its mouth and stubs for arms. Okosua and her partners had front row seats to the waste their colonial oppressors laid to their lives' early years. Like their neighbors in Robapel, they and their other native Nefualese were forced into a servitude that was enforced with scorns, whips, poisons, and bullets. It was years of an incubus they would rather not, but were afraid of reliving. Akosua lunged out and crouched in with a sequence that shot the guards' heads and necks without them hitting her with one splinter. Kahina ran from one tree to another, so on or back again, spinning, skipping, and flipping her way out of the bullets' paths. Lumusi aimed and shot with the self-control of a human with no head, sustaining shards and splinters that burned and stabbed her corium. Kasembo muted her painful grunts and the clamorous fighting around him, hearing only his heartbeats and breaths as he struggles to advance an inch. Juma won the fight for him and his partners, stunning the surviving guards into beating the hastiest retreats their lungs would allow. Tadala threw a grenade at the fence and had his partners get down as it blew away a noticeable portion of its zapping wires and poles. Having the castle inwardly mapped out, he led the six-strong plow past the damp, fluorescent nature that made Eldonion look untouched when it really wasn't. Three-quarters of a mile in, the sextet halted at the sight of a trim, sleek, hillside lined with scepter-like lights and paved by a clean brick path, freezing Kahina from the tops of her neat braids to the bottom of her unfortified heart. 
during the settlers' rule over Robapel and Nefuala, Adalino, and Burr exchanged their country's natives in an unwholesome response to how Haruna and Chizoba traded power. One such swap was between the sextet and a second group of six from Rokrada, an island that neighbored Aldelnion from the southwest. Once Okosua and her partners met Adalino and Cortenay, they were worked to sickness and injury and disciplined ruthlessly whenever they complained. Catalina experienced that dynamic firsthand when she was punished for not fertilizing the flowers fast enough. The guards tackled her, slammed her face on the stone that paved the castle's gardens and pushed as much blood out of her bruises as they could in that moment. They blindfolded Kahina and walked her by the natural stone pool, fire pit, and Argentine-style cooker that designed the backyard. Adalina, Kiana, Ramira, and Kimmy were playing in the water when the walk happened. They were unable to see it due to the guards' crowding diligence in keeping it out of their views. Being in junior high at the time, the four girls shrugged the bunched-up walk off as some eccentric exercise their father had the guards do. The second Kahina was where she was looking up at now. The guards body slammed her, scissored her clothes to strands of fabric, and held her down as their supervisor got on top of her, used his whip to eviscerate her face until she passed out from the immense pain. Where she found herself at when she woke up was too hurtful to look back on. It submerged her in the water that sat her down and had her quietly bawling, his chest tightening up and stomach turning sour. Kisembo hugged her the way a father would to his daughter after a dark hour. He told Kahina that she didn't deserve any of her hurt, vowing to make sure no one ever violates her like the guards did again. Kasembo liked her how a big brother would love his little sister, feeling the hurt, aching her blood vessels, and an obligation to shield her from evil. Kahina, on the other hand, had feelings for him that weren't siblingly or even friendly, but were downright amorous. She hit the crush she had on him in fear of rocking or poking a hole on the six-strong boat, even though doing so became more and more difficult as they got older. Kahina turned her hug with Kasembo into a young girl cuddling a teddy bear bigger than her. Upon her composure's return, she hid herself betwixt her partners as they all began their claws and steps up the hillside. Each inch they moved up raised their fear of being stuck in between the Aunions and their guards and the ground that would end their lethal falls. Okosua was first to grip the brick and roll onto the path, helping Lumusi and Juma finish their climbs, who in turn helped Tadala complete his. Sensing Kahina's grasps loosening, Kasembo had her sit on his shoulders, giving himself much of the physical onus. Her heart's pink 
flushed, a carnation petals shrivel, his valiance, involuntary assumption of her burden, tickling her clitoris. Akosua and Juma assisted Kisembo in getting onto the path, and they would give Kahina that same help. Their feet now on the brick, the sextet, was out of a situation that put them under the heel of the hand fate dealt them, which bedeviled them from base to summit. Rushing up the path, winding and fluctuating, they caught sight of what looked like rusting shacks built to resemble restrooms. The sextet gulped their dread to make their charge into the external room headstrong. What they uncovered inside was a ferocious fate many who were in their situation were taken to for their repeated or severe derelictions of duty, an end even minors weren't exempt from. The utter egregiousness bubbled Lumusi's blood like boiling water and almost plunged Kahina into a spell of yelling and crying. A sense of failure poured its 2,000-pound load of bricks onto Juma while Tadala remained stoic, feeling that there wasn't a thing he could have done to prevent the four murders. Okosua and Kasembo vowed to make the Anyons pay for that abomination and any others they'll find. All at once, the sextet's rifles were shot in half by the explosive rounds of a shotgun, courtesy of Adelino's guards, to their fluster-inducing misfortune. Powerless to resist, they submitted to the commands of having their hands up and walking to where their heads were centimeters from the muscles of the weapons that disarmed them. The supervisor from Kahina's flashback welcomed the sextet back to the plantation, placing special emphasis on her return. His salivating brought the sweats she and her partners were drenching in to 50 degrees. The supervisor informed Adalino and Courtenay that his fugitives have been apprehended. His superiors ordered him and the other guards to bring them to the building where special things happen. The sextet assumed that they were headed for the walled tenebrosity that wickedly violated Kahina, but their former enslavers had a different place in mind, one designed specifically for them. A quiet as eerie as a haunted house overcame a white room emptier than a plateau in the South Pole of Antarctica. The sextet was peacefully asleep in their white underwear, close by one another after being clubbed out cold. First to wake up, Okosua found the color and noise around her categorically perplexing. She nudged, tapped, and hit her partners until they broke out of their sleeps, resulting in them sharing in her bafflement. Lumusi wondered where the devil she and her partners were at, prompting Tadala to tell her that her guess was as good as his. Kahina didn't understand why she was in such a light room, expecting buzzing fluorescence and solid or faded blacks. Although the quiet struck Okosua as seeming off, Juma and Kasembo were optimistic that Haruna's forces had rescued them 
and that they were in a processing center in Lunsal. Adelino Sr. told the men that they couldn't be more wrong, cracking Courtenay up into adding that the sextet was right where she and he wanted them, stuck in place by their crushed hope. The six looked up and saw their ex-oppressors in all their suited glory. Adelino and Courtenay's cunning smiles made the sextet frown in revulsion, dimming her into asking why their faces were so long. The husband asked the six what he and his wife ever did to them to deserve such hostile looks, turning their hot anger even redder. Casembo called Adelino and Courtenay god-awful excuses for humanity, offending the husband into asking him what he just called him and his wife. Akosua told the pair that they heard him loud and clear, repeating what he said herself. Looking down to appear remorseful with Adelino, Courtenay asked the sextet if her husband's dim face and her sucked-in lips made them happy now, not fooling any one of the six. Kahina growled at the pair not to even think about saying sorry, calling any and all of their apologies as genuine as pyrite is real gold. Tadala knew that Adalino and Courtenay were proud of every detail they drew to turn Robapel into a magical resort for the bigoted, domineering, and black-hearted. The pair made sport of the idea that they reduced the worth of the native Robopelese to that of zoo animals. Adelino thought it was the best time to tell the sextet why Robopel was special to him. At age 10, his parents took him on a trot through the archipelago's exotic jungles, wonderful waterfalls, imposing elevations, and soggy beaches. Adelino called those two weeks the adventure of his life, dining like a royal prince, swimming from sunrise to sunset, hiking for days on end, and opening his arms to the mist. Even so, he loved the yes-sir and no-sir responses the natives gave to every question he asked and request he handed them. Their adamance to please had the brightness of their smiles and modesty of their uniforms. That vacation was Adelino's first real break from the ruthlessness of his studies, enrichment, and etiquette classes. But for him, the best part of it would not arrive until its last full day when he fell head over heels for a girl who was desperate for someone to play with her as her parents were busy with government business. Courtenay. Her two weeks were spent finding ways to entertain herself within the boundaries of a mansion her parents rented out. That last day was the thanks she got from her mom and dad for bearing with them, manifesting in a healing afternoon on Rokrada's southwestern beach. Lucky that their parents were on neighborly terms, Adelino and Courtenay bonded by building a sand kingdom that was a mesh of all their favorite 
fairy tales and folklore. Using their ring and middle fingers, they simulated a wedding where a royal band played to the groom's walk down the aisle. Adelino imagined his family and friends from school sitting in his half of the audience. Courtenay thought up that band playing to her stride under her parents' escort, her part of the seating filled with the church's parishioners. Holding hands and looking into the other's eyes, the pair was asked by the priest if they promised to take the person before them as their partner through the sickest hardships and healthiest prosperities, remaining as two to their graves and where their spirits are freed. Adelino and Courtenay uttered the most lachrymose of decisive I do's, touching the minister into declaring them as forever bonded. They envisaged their hug, causing the church to erupt in an ovation so fervid, even its dark-skinned housepeople took part. That pretend wedding's connection to the sextet was that the servants who tended to and cleaned up after the clergy were their exceptions and not the norm. Adelino and Courtenay saw them as being a tier above the other black workers by virtue of them being bred and raised Bromelian. Therefore, the sextet was viewed as being the only ones inclined to oppress their own, tightening the settlers' grips on the natives even more. Lemusi yelled that there wasn't a chance on this earth that she or her partners would join a clique as execrable as the Bromelian settlers. Akosua partly agreed on the basis that there was an appreciable opposition within that population, the people of East Rifuji Khan. Kahina, Kisembo, and Tadala weren't as unwavering in their refusal to side with Adelino as Lumusi was, but didn't see the caveat that she saw or believed in it. Courtenay beat into Juma's head her point that his bloodstream contained the cells that were in the veins of the settlers his partners found so appalling. Adelino demanded the sextet to come to grips with the fact that they're just as Bromelian as he and his wife. Reflecting on his earlier years, Juma saw the staffs of Bromelian and American flags meet in an X on the wall of every home his family owned, until the Baharias made the decision to move the Nefuala he had never heard of nor knew a thing about that nation. Adelino called the accusation that the settlers came to Robapel to exploit its resources and population slanderous. He added that his aim was to bring the nation to a level on par with Bromelia and other western nations. Courtenay said that it wasn't like the settlers left much behind, equating them to felons whom the Valverdes sent away to start with clean slates after having lost face with every powerful person in the mainland. Kasembo asked the pair if they stupidly expected him or his partners to feel a milligram of pity for their tribulations. Akosua demanded that Adelino 
and Courtenay answer her question of whether they ever exuded a drip of self-disgust when they had that family murdered or allowed their guards to do what they wished to Kahina. Fed up with the conversation at hand, the pair started jointly counting down from 100. That countdown had to fall under the 95 mark for the context surrounding it to startle the sextet into running like horses racing across the open grass. During the time of that life-threatening game of hide-and-seek, things had settled down in Robapel and Nefuala, but that mellowing out would reveal the end results of the Nefuali's assault on Platicosta. The mentioned island did not fall under Alexis's control, thanks to the Bromelian-backed militia that was under Gregorio Jr.'s command, hardly suffering any casualties while wiping out nine out of every ten of their opponents. Within the firefighting, Adelino's vice leader, Theodora Betancourt, ordered Grimsby's hirelings to bring her superior's kids back home alive. The compliance she got was in the form of Adelina, Kiana, Ramira, and Kimi returning to West Rifuji Khan unharmed. Brett Jr. readily let Gregorio take him to where he and his troops set up base, setting Adelino Jr. up to also be headed there, but under compulsion. Rhett was in an armored boat Ikena and Yahide stole from the Robapelli's military, soaking in the blue sky, light clouds, and restful waves. To him, the smell of the salt water had the fragrance of the first roses of spring, the scent of a free rain he could eat up all day and night. Ikena assertively asked him how it felt to no longer have an anus like Adelino Sr. dogging his moves and words. Yehide stopped him from inconsiderately holding Rhett's left shoulder and told him to let her do the talking. Ikena told her to suit herself and walked into the ship's inner quarters to play cards with four of the other passengers. With him gone, Yehide sat and scooted over to Rhett, sensing that he wasn't sure whether he should be glad that he was now free to live his life the way he saw fit or sad that he doesn't have his siblings or step-parents to nurture him anymore. Her expectation was that her effort to show Rhett her light was going to be a long, drawn-out one, involving a number of tangents, digressions, obstinacies, and incomprehensions. Yet, the first thing Yehide heard was Rhett's evident gladness over getting out of a situation where dogma and ill-treatment was rampant. He remembered how tight he, Brett Jr., and Kiana were when their main foes were Brett Sr. and Abby, hugging and snuggling away whatever blows and yells that came their way. But when the Onions entered the picture, Rhett found himself drifting further away from his brother and sister, who were hell-bent on flipping off their biological parents whenever an opportunity to do so presented itself. His decision to stay in Aldeonion for all those years was based on his glum 
over having nowhere else to go. But when Rhett met Yahide, he discerned a clear, safe avenue he could use to make his bolt for freedom. Despite him being the correct boy to make the right escape, he had to wait until the Platicosta attack for the proper time to arrive. When that second came, Rhett used the chaos to evade the watchful eyes of his step-siblings. He raced on by the front of the manor and was halfway up its right side when a hole as big as a living room bursted open that allowed serfs like Ikena and Yahide to run away and meet up with Rhett running through Platicosta's interior forest. They packed into a ship, Robopolis troops abandoned and marked as a beached whale. Rhett channeled his inner craftsmen to resurrect the vessel's motor and electricity, taking out an encyclopedia-sized map of Robopel's shipping routes to and from the Adaloon Islands, which he stole from his history teacher who fought alongside Kyolene and Kestrel. He admitted that if there was anything he missed from his old life, it was the affection he publicly displayed with Brett Jr. and Kiana. Knowing what Rhett meant by that, Yehide offered to cuddle with him a little, a proposition he gleefully accepted, and so they embraced and napped like a pair at the bottom of a bathtub that steeply extended down. As Rhett's nightmare appeared to be on its way out, the incubus that had Adelina, Kiana, Ramira, and Kimmy in its clench reached its true beginning. That inception was Adelino Sr. and Courtenay lying in a big splash of blood from a beating that proved fatal. It shattered Adelina's ego and burned its shards away. Had Kiana sobbing like she never did before shocked Ramira so badly that she could not emote and eternalized Kimmy's hope that she and her stepsisters could begin to heal and reaffirm their relationship. But Theodora had anything but alleviation on her agenda, her anger boiling over after the Nefualis assumed control over East Refugee Khan. However, the one gain she secured in all the chaos was that Nefuala's capital, Burkrahe City, was now hers, having blown away the leadership Alexis hand-picked to govern the country, plus much of its first city in a blitz that didn't discriminate in what or who it destroyed. Alexis and Chizoba weren't in the shelling radius when the attack commenced, far away from danger in a camp out, invisible to the sun. It made the former feel like he was back in Alexifosa and returned the latter to the shelteredness of his youth. Addressing the people of Nefuala's other islands, Chizoba assured them that their councils have the resources to protect them and ward off Theodora's forces. He said that Gregorio Sr.'s alumni may have the capital, but they don't have Nefuala as a whole, reiterating to his residents that their nation is still united, will fight to the death to keep it that way, and take back the city where they brought Burr to his last ever rest. Alexis told 
the Nefuelis people to make no mistake that their war with the West has stepped onto a new and more uncertain front. He called the wall separating his East Refugee Khan from Feodora's Robapel and her Burkrahis city from his Nefuala barriers that'll remain erected as long as the Bromelian imperialists stayed alive. Well into his Saturday, Sherry Social, Grimsby received a call from Gregorio Jr. that he's back in Cressy Strea, Cape Verde, having Brett Jr. and Adalino Jr. with him. The president finished his nutty wine, then ordered his militants to lay low and focus on keeping their skills and wits in shape until he hands them their next assignment. Served a fresh glass of sherry, Grimsby handed Mauricia, Marcos, and Catelpa the most derisive grins his virile head would allow. The latter three were strangers at the time, having never met or talked, yet were present at every party that was hosted at the top cap of Bromelia's societal ladder. Grimsby's smile was also the result of his expectation that he'll be in luck for some drunken, quarrelsome entertainment. The party was how he coped with losing most of Nefuala and East Refugee Khan, seeing those defeats as setbacks he could bounce back from. Taking the stage with his son, Grimsby Jr., and his large family, Grimsby Sr. saluted in honor of Adelino Sr. and Burr, thanking them for their service to Bromelia. He asked everyone to send their thoughts and prayers to Adelina, Adelino Jr., Kiana, Brett Jr., Ramira, and Kimmy. In addition, Grimsby asked God to give him his assurance that Rhett won't succumb to the necrosis of his Bromelian identity. Behind Alexis Jr.'s back, Alexis III and Loretto listened to his live message on Roddy Zorro and silently commiserated for the Valverdes and Agnones. Similar to Kimi and Rhett, those young men felt like inmates in Alexis Jr.'s prison, longing for anyone of any persuasion to get them out. But their many half-brothers and half-sisters were also desperate to break free of their father's grip. That longing was such that they'd welcome Grimsby Sr. and Theodora with wide open arms, in spite of their concern that those two wouldn't reciprocate that warm reception. An inner city of communal apartments hid under the concrete, brick, and metal of East Refugee Khan's wider umbra. Indiscernible from high in the air, its centermost building and its interior were the eye walls of the Red Wasp storm. Their clothes torn up and coated in blood, Okosua, Kahina, Lumusi, Juma, Kasembo, and Tadala sat apprehensively in a penthouse that was a far opulent cry from the grittiness of the outside. They wouldn't take back one blow they forced onto Adelino Sr. in Courtenay, but that didn't make the targets locked on them any less prevalent. The sextet knew that Theodora would spare no penny in making sure their heads would be hers to show to the world, not to mention the significant injuries they sustained 
during the fight. In any event, the crisis in the Gulf of Guinea would prove to be just the first of many dire and public displays that would directly hit the Bromelian community, and as fate would have it, the next impacts would sting harder and inject more venom than the last. And that was the Guinean Gulf Crisis. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to listen to the story I just gave. Share this show with everyone you know. Make sure they share it with everyone they know. Check out my website at www.rss.com slash podcasts slash the dystopian republic. Send me your respectful questions and constructive feedback at Raul Guerrero Jr. 95 at gmail.com. And lastly, support the show via my PayPal at paypal.com slash paypal me slash Raul Guerrero Jr. On that note, I'm Raul Guerrero and come again for another gripping, thoughtful, and sinister episode of the Dystopian Republic.